You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know, it's not always easy being president. In 1980, in the Oval Office, President Carter made a big decision. He hung up the phone and put his head onto his desk, cradled his head in his hands for about five seconds. That's all you get as the President of the United States. His national security advisor, Zig Brzezinski, sat there next to him, motionless and silent. The two men in charge of the military of the United States, the leaders of the free world, and there was nothing they could do. It was a total disaster, and the worst hadn't even happened yet. Carter had just aborted a mission called Eagle Claw. But you and I know that mission as Desert One. It was an attempt to rescue the 54 hostages in the American embassy that were being held in Iran. Mechanical failures had just made the mission impossible. There was no way to continue. His national security advisor, the joint chief of staff chairman, and the man in charge on the ground had all recommended abort, and Carter did it. With the knowledge that the failure of the mission would get out to the press, we have a free press in America, that it would ruin his presidency, would ruin negotiations for the release of the 54 American hostages, and would possibly harm those hostages. But it got worse. Then, on the way of getting out of Iran, the rescue mission turned from disaster to absolute tragedy. A helicopter crashed into a transport plane. Eight men were killed. On television that night, Carter took full blame. plan for Eagle Claw, on paper, went like this. I could explain it to you. Eight helicopters would fly off the Nimitz carrier in the Indian Ocean to distract and avoid a Soviet tail. They were tailing our aircraft carriers. That was a problem in those days of the Cold War. The aircraft carrier Coral Sea would send speeding towards Indonesia. Five C-130 transport planes would then arrive from a base in Egypt, carrying the assault force of Delta Force, Special Forces, Special Counterterrorism Forces, and Army Rangers. Everyone would meet in an area south of Tehran, in Iranian territory, at night. Copters would then take the assaulters to a secret hiding place, arranged by the CIA, but reviewed by the Army uh, Rangers as well, near the outskirts of Tehran. The copters would also find a hiding place, and all of them would stay throughout the next day. 
They needed the cover of night. Then trucks and vans secured by the CIA with drivers paid by the CIA would take the assaulters to the embassy. A Pakistani cook who had been co-opted, working in the embassy, had been co-opted by the CIA, knew the building the hostages were being held in. They would go to that building first, but if they were not there, the Delta Force would search the entire embassy compound. It was a rather large compound with several buildings and get the hostages. Another group would rescue three more hostages being held in the Iran foreign ministry. Copters would then bring all the assaulters and the 54 hostages back to an airfield on the outskirts of Tehran where the hostages would be secured, loaded onto the planes, and everyone would get out of Iran. Sounds good. On paper. In Washington, it was kept a total secret. The Joint Chief of Staff Chairman convened a special task force that he did not use regular Pentagon employees. It was way too sensitive for this. Carter kept his Secretary of State Cyrus Vance out of the loop. Instead, he used Undersecretary Warren Christopher for all of the meetings about this plan. Vance didn't support the mission, and Carter didn't want him anywhere near it. That's not the first time that a president has done that to one of his secretaries. President's the commander-in-chief and the leader of the country, and secretaries were there to help him with his plans. But Cyrus Vance, of course, didn't like it very much. Ham Jordan, the president's chief of staff, was sent to France to meet with Irani moderates. One of them told him, things aren't going well, they're cool, but I hope your president doesn't do anything rash. What that Iranian moderate did not know is that was the signal that Jordan brought back to Carter, which convinced him most likely to go with this operation. Three times, these Iranian moderates had tried to make a settlement with the Carter administration, and three times, the more belligerent members of the Iranian government had canceled the settlements. Carter ruled out an attack, an all-out assault, and war with Iran, though it was considered, because it would kill the hostages instantly. If there was any kind of attack, the Iranians would kill the hostages. Special ops offered him a way out. Nights were getting shorter, though, in Iran, and Carter's approval rating was getting lower, and friends of the administration were getting a little antsy. What are you doing? In a sense, Desert One or any covert or special forces option is the most hawkish peaceful mission that a president can engage in. And you see that in this situation. Plus, Jimmy Carter trusted Colonel Charlie Beckworth, a fellow Georgian, Vietnam vet, and the creator of Delta Force, a special counterterrorism unit of the Army Special Forces. The go order was given on April 23, 1980. The C-130s arrived immediately to the place that they were to meet in Iranian territory, this Desert One location. They're in the opponent's country. Great. No problem. Beckwith was on one of these with his assaulters. Beckwith hears on the way to Desert One on the radio, eight copters off the Nimitz. This is great news. He had only expected seven, but it looks like the Nimitz could handle giving eight copters to the operation. Of course, originally they requested 10, but that was a pipe dream. The pieces of the plan were all coming together. Delta Force didn't look like the rest of the army. They looked like some of the people who were holding the hostages in Iran, the revolutionaries, long-haired, disheveled in case they had to fight their way out of Iran. Some of them wanted to look like Iranians. 
But all of them had American flag patches so that they could show them to the hostages. And so they wouldn't think that something bad was going on. Maybe a rival faction of Iranians were trying to capture them. And so everybody was ready to fight. But Beckwith and the men had to wait for the copters. 25 minutes passed. Then finally, as they were running out of precious nighttime, the first copter came in. Beckwith screamed at the pilot, you're late. The pilot screamed back, only 25 minutes and there's a dust storm going on. There is no dust storm, Beckwith yelled at the pilot. Yes, there is, the pilot yelled back. This all according to Mark Bowden, the author of Black Hawk Down, his account of the mission. Great account in the Atlantic Monthly in 2006, how relevant it is today. From that account, you can see this operation involved several branches of the military, and leadership wasn't exactly clear. Everyone was kind of doing their own thing. That would happen with the copters as well. Despite what Beckwith heard on the radio, he wasn't about to get eight copters. One of them wouldn't even make it into Iran. When the pilot left the aircraft carrier, he received a mechanical failure indicator light. Now, the indicator light, in the pilot's opinion, meant that the copter could crash at any moment. It was a problem with the rotor blade. Now, since then, it's been investigated, and the pilot was used to flying a different type of copter. In the copter that he had, the Sea Stallion, there had not been a crash after that indicator light was given, and it probably was a situation where he could have proceeded. But that was all afterthought. Once the remaining seven pilots got into Iran, they hit a dust cloud known as a hubub in Iran. Now, this is a very normal occurrence, but it wasn't something that was planned for in the mission. And planes go so fast and so high that they wouldn't even see or run into this dust cloud problem. But copters flying closer to the ground to avoid detection, it was a nightmare. They, it ruined the night vision of the, the, the goggles that the pilots had. It knocked the rotor around, and it gave the pilots a sense of vertigo from being knocked around. One pilot came close to hitting a mountain. But just then, according to the co-pilot's account, almost on a whim, said, I think this mountain is close and pulled up and avoided the mountain by a few seconds. They could not see. The pilots were shaken up. They thought they were going to crash. One pilot could not control his copter and thought that uh, everyone was probably aborting the mission. One of the things you have to realize is they had no uh, radio communication. There was total radio silence once they got into enemy territory. So they couldn't consult with each other and say, hey, it's just a normal dust cloud. It's a little rough. But when you get to Desert One, where Beckwith and the men were, everything's going to be clear. With this copter pilot thought that everybody had aborted the mission, and even in Desert One, there was a dust storm going on, and they'd try this operation again later when there were better conditions. He had to make that assumption, thought he was going to crash. So he turned around and went back to the aircraft carrier. Now you have six. In order to complete Desert One, they needed a minimum of six, so here you are at the minimum, no safety margin. Very late, but still night, the six copters, disoriented pilots, arrive to Desert One. Beckworth starts shouting at the pilots, Skipper, can I load my men? The pilots were shaken up a bit, but granted permission. Beckworth began loading the Delta Force into the chopters, getting ready to go to their hiding place under the cover of night. Now here's where it got critical. One of these six copters had a hydraulic problem. 
Essentially, it meant that at any moment, you would lose control of the copter and crash. It would be like your brakes being broken on the car. and You can still drive the car, but you're not sure when the brakes are going to go out. This is something similar. I'm not a helicopter expert, so I can't give you all that. It's a hydraulic problem. There was some controversy on Desert One, and there were people shouting at each other and a lack of leadership. Beth Beckwith was fuming. He hinted that the pilots didn't want to go, so they were making this up. The pilots were extremely insulted, and they were just about sick of Beckwith. So you had Beckwith shouting that he was going to report all kinds of people to the commander-in-chief, his friend from Georgia, and you had the pilots uh, yelling back that you were insulting the Air Force, and this is how Desert One was going down. They went over it and over it again. The helicopter was not safe to fly, so you had five copters. With five copters, there would not be enough to get all the hostages and have all the fighters that were needed for the mission to be completed. You could have just about 20 fighters. Now, even very well-trained Delta Force assault fighters, just 20 of them. They weren't exactly sure how many uh, guards were in the embassy compound. They did have the advantage of surprise. But basically, as Beckwith reasoned, five copters was an automatic abort for the mission. In all their mission planning, five copters was an abort. So that's what he had to recommend. The president was called. The president only wanted to confirm that Beckwith had indeed agreed with the recommendation, and it was an abort mission. That's Desert One. There would be a Holloway Commission that would look into Desert One. Of course, Desert One was plagued by organizational failures. Delta Force, Rangers, Air Force, Navy, CIA, all of these branches involved. Unclear leadership. But to be fair, it was a lot harder mission, perhaps, even than the killing of a single individual hiding in Pakistan. This was pulling out 54 people out of a hostile country under guard with the technology of 1980 versus the technology of 2011. But even with that technology difference, I think the big difference is even today, if there was an operation to get Osama bin Laden, but also to rescue, you know, 54 hostages at the same time, I think you'd have a lot of difficulty. And you really had to get all 54 of them. You can imagine if even one or two of them got killed during this Desert One rescue operation, you know, you'd still have people questioning what went wrong and you'd have people questioning whether or not with negotiation you could have got 54 out, even though the three attempts at negotiation had failed. So you really needed to get 54 out. You really needed to not have a large amount of casualties among the assault force, get out of Iran, and get everybody safe. And it would have been a huge moment for America, as was the event that we had Sunday. In this mission, the mission of killing Osama bin Laden, dead or alive, was the call made by former President Bush, and dead was the way that Osama bin Laden was delivered. It's a little bit easier than a hostage rescue operation, right? So I think it doesn't exactly invite a comparison to Desert One, except that it's it's coming a long way for American Special Forces. And the options that a president has now, that's the way to look at this too. We think of what is war, declaring war, not declaring war, or just proceeding with a, an array of special options. The president has more realistic options now than ever before. 
Let's look a little bit of the politics and history of yesterday. So what would have happened if Desert One was successful? Let's just take it first if that crash hadn't happened in the desert. You still had a very difficult operation trying to rescue those hostages with a Delta Force without losing any one of them. Still a lot of hitches there, but let's say everything went beautifully. The hostages, the Delta Force, the Rangers, everybody on the planes going home. What would have happened to President Carter's presidency? Would he have been reelected? It's a what if. It's a counterfactual. And a lot of people will tell you, don't get involved in counterfactuals. And I don't spend a lot of time on it. In my history, can beat up your politics. But I do think they're useful at least to provide a little bit of understanding or a different perspective, as long as you're clear on what you're doing. And I do believe that even if all the hostages were brought home, that it's unlikely that President Carter still would have been reelected in 1980. For two key factors, one is that he rescued the hostages, but there are still a lot of people in the country upset that the hostages were taken in the first place, how long it went on, and that American prestige was you know, slapped in the face. And secondly, and more importantly, President Carter has, as it would turn out, a very significant charismatic challenger and faced a very poor economy, which did not get better in 1980. The combination of unemployment, you know, low GDP growth, and inflation. Just devastating gas prices, all kinds of uh, misery for the American people in 1980. And I think that a successful operation in April, by the time you got to November, probably would have been forgotten about, though the election might have been a little for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. tighter. Nineteen seventy nine, the US Embassy, which then existed in Tehran, Iran. Guards stationed in the inner walls of the complex noticed a crowd of hostile people forming outside chanting Death to America and other slogans. Soon, radical Iranian students began climbing over the wall. The guards had strict instructions. Do not fire. They and a few employees were taken hostage and blindfolded. After a few hours of tension, the Iranian police cleared the students and restored the embassy to American control. All the hostages were released. Employees went back to work. Foreign policy disaster was averted, and it was all over in a day. At least, that's how it happened the first time the embassy walls were scaled in 79. In fact, it was so easily resolved that it was called the St. Valentine's Day Open House by embassy staff. 
Of course, the Carter administration did take some precautions after that. They removed 900 employees and left just a skeleton crew, about 70 people, the minimum needed to maintain at least the appearance of friendly relations with the new revolutionary Iranian government. Iran had overthrown its Shah in 1978. He was a strong ally of the United States, but an oppressor of his people, an oppressor of political dissent. But the U.S. cannot afford to lose any connection to a nation that bordered the Soviet Union, that had oil reserves, since a provisional government was in place and was talking about a constitutional government being formed. The U.S. needed to stay friendly, despite a heavy anti-American hostility in the streets of the city. Thankfully, the Shah had not taken up the invitation of the government to go to the United States after the revolution. He traveled to Morocco, then the Bahamas, Mexico. But in October, he asked the president to enter the U.S. for treatment of his lymphoma, the only nation in the world that had the type of cancer treatment needed. It wasn't taken lightly. It was known that allowing the Shah in would influence passions. President Carter faced the decision on humanitarian grounds and the idea of treating an ally well. How would other nations see the U.S. if we ditched a former ally in his time of need? Carter allowed the Shah to enter the United States. Protests immediately filled the streets of Iran. Radical students pressed the new provisional government of Prime Minister Mehdi Bazargan to give up on the constitutional process, which involved communists, moderates, Democrats, and support the Ayatollah and the radical clerics. To clear the den of spies of the great Satan, the embassy, rumors swirled when it was discovered that the U.S. had secretly met with Prime Minister Bazargan in Algiers. From the U.S. side, these deals were nothing more than about restoring the assets that were frozen at the time of the revolution and possibly giving the Iranian Air Force parts for its planes. But to the students, it was clearly a plan to secretly restore the Shah and their own traitorous government was involved. And so in November, street protests turned into a full assault on the embassy. It was not spontaneous. Students from five colleges formed the Strength and Unity Movement, a key leader in the movement, though he claimed no involvement in the actual embassy events, some hostages differ with that account, was the current president of Iran. One student had metal shears and was able to open the gate of the embassy easily. Others stormed the wall. Soon, several hundred students had entered the embassy's inner grounds once again. They knew it well because many were the same students who had participated in the St. Valentine's Day open house. The guards once again had orders to surrender, which they did and were once again blindfolded. A few of the officers held up, though, in the main chancery building, which could not be penetrated. It had a metal door that could withstand almost anything the students had. Because the outer coating of the door was wood, the students tried setting it on fire to no avail. Students shouted at the few CIA agents and embassy staff in the chancery building who were trying to get a hold of the Iranian foreign minister. They threatened to kill the hostages if the door was not open. William Doherty, head CIA officer in Tehran, began shredding documents. These, he knew, could be used as evidence in some future frightening witch trial that might be to come. A security officer from the Chancery Building went out to reason with the crowd. He was quickly captured and blindfolded. More shredding, more documents in a sealed vault, more shouts from the students. Eventually, with tensions high, Threats to kill the hostages, no sign of help from the Iranian government, calls to the foreign ministry not returned or inconclusive. The head of embassy staff, Bruce Lanigan, surrendered 
and 66 hostages at that time were taken, marched into the ambassador's residence. There wasn't a lot of room. They were unblindfolded for a time for what would be their first night of many in captivity. Some hostages heard a helicopter land on the embassy grounds. Ah, was it the foreign minister arriving to intervene on their behalf to clear these radical students and get things under control? Were the police once again clearing the area? It was not. Though the actions were carried out by a group of radical students, protesters of all sorts began to fill the streets of Iran in an anti-American demonstration, showing support for what the students have done. All ears were tuned to what the Ayatollah Khomeini, the religious leader of Iran, would do. Would he support what the students had done or clear the embassy? When Khomeini saw the television reports and the amount of people in the streets supporting the students, he gave his support. Instantly, the hostage takers became national religious heroes. They had, in the bizarre media spin of Iran, rid the country of the possible return of the Shah, fought against the great oppressor for a new Iranian Islamic Republic. There are still some in government positions today basking in their popularity from being a hostage taker, the equivalent in Iranian rhetoric to being a true patriot. But the intention of the students on that day was not to be hostage takers, at least not for a very long time. It was to end the involvement of the United States in Iran. If they stormed the embassy, if they did one more hostage taking, they knew the U.S. would break relations with the Iranian provisional government and the U.S. would be out of their country. As William Doherty, that CIA officer, remembered The interrogations that he was subject to seemed hasty, unprofessional, not part of the plan, easy to dodge the questions and to get around the issue. But after the Ayatollah blessed the event, it seemed like what was a short-term plan had to continue and continue as it became a national event. Today, a few hostage takers indeed would like to forget the events. A few feel that their actions done to save the country, were used by the radical clerics to take over and consolidate their power. Many are part of the reform movement now. Some are outspoken critics of the government. But then, with the eyes of Iran on that compound, things were different. Politically, it changed a lot in the country. Mehdi Barzagan immediately resigned once Khomeini gave his support to the students. His government was finished. There was no provisional government. Khomeini's uh, constitution under Islamic law, which had been controversial before the hostage-taking, passed with 97% of the vote. The radical clerics solidified their power as embassy documents, some pieced together from shredded pieces, were used to embarrass political opponents of the regime. Hostages were paraded to the crowds in front of the embassy to shouts of death to America and the U.S. can do nothing. You can imagine what it would be like to be one of these hostages. I knew you were in a pretty dangerous place, but the rules of diplomacy are pretty solid and people just don't do these type of things. For Catherine Comp, it was the scariest experience of her life. Just think about it. You're being brought out cuffed, in a blindfold, your hostage takers, who you don't have a lot of respect for anyway, as your protector, are bringing you out to a crowd of people shouting things in a language that you don't understand. Though blindfolded, she could hear that there was considerable hostility and violence ahead of her. 
She had no idea if she was being thrown into the mob. Without my faith, Cobb said, I don't know what I would have done, she told a newspaper after her release. For the second and third day, hostages were blindfolded, sometimes tied to chairs and sat upright all through the night. Eventually, they were moved to larger rooms and had beds. But food was not good. Guards were rude and downright sadistic sometimes. Interrogation was constant and even mock executions would be held to keep hostages in line. Moorhead Kennedy, though, was so confident that it would be over in a few days that he wore his suit and tie for two weeks, even to bed. Another captive, William Rogers, said, Ultimately, I thought we were too valuable to be disposed of. I knew it was a political thing. But we had our doubts at times. Kevin Hammerling, a Marine guard, 20 years old at the time, said in an odd way, He was so young that he got caught up in the excitement of it. But that soon ended when he tried to escape. And at one point he was put into solitary confinement for months, as were some of the bigger or military skilled men. Among the hostages, everyone dealt with the situation in their own way. Gary Earl Lee said that he had made friends with the ants and the salamander in his cell. He would tease the ants with a pistachio nut, moving it forward and then pulling it away. At least, Gary Lee said, they were better friends than the guards. The hostages could have no idea what was going on around them, but events had turned in Iran. Khomeini had put his son Ahmad in charge of the embassy situation as his personal envoy, putting his stamp of approval and his control into the operation. Some of the original wall scalers were replaced with others. Rotating shifts of equally ideologically charged hostage takers cycled through the embassy. There is no shortage of volunteers. Ahmad Khomeini said years later in his memoirs that he figured thunder and lightning was about to come from the United States. It never came. Roused out of bed, the American government met on the crisis on the day of the embassy takeover. Cyrus Vance, Secretary of State, his deputy Warren Christopher, the POTUS, Jimmy Carter, Gary Sick, National Security Council aide. Sick felt that it would last just a few hours. Chief of Staff Hamilton Jordan reminded everyone that this had happened in February and look how it turned out. Should be fine. Lloyd Cutler, White House attorney, compared it to a recent Colombian situation and a recent Sudanese embassy situation where there had been storms uh, on the embassy. And in these situations, the U.S. did what it could simply to support the government in getting the terrorists out of the embassy. No one realized how completely responsive the mob was to religious extremists or understood that the provisional government was without power now. Carter's own CIA chief would say, we were caught sleeping. Carter noted that there was little precedent for the situation. It was the first time that a government appeared to support the storming of a U.S. embassy. Secretary of Defense Harold Brown and National Security Advisor Zig Brzezinski laid out the options. Mining the Iranian harbor seizing the oil fields, bombing the oil fields, bombing Tehran. The team ruled most of these out, as it might not lead to any action on the hostages, and the hostages themselves might be killed in reaction to this American action. We should remember that we're talking about 66 people's lives. Now, it eventually uh, whittled down to 52, as the Iranians did release some of the prisoners in a PR gesture. This is not a small amount of people. So losing 52 casualties in any operation is a foreign policy disaster already. And this this weighed heavily on Carter's mind. 
Indeed, when you have that many hostages, 66 of them, the Iranian government had the option of perhaps killing a few of them, still keeping the rest. So you both have a retaliation to whatever the president did and still had the hostages to use as blackmail against future actions. And in the background was the Soviet Union. What they would do in this situation was unpredictable, but it was likely all of the national security advisors agreed that they would respond in a hostile fashion to an, a direct attack on Iran. Carter also thought that actions he took might lead to just an increase in support for the Ayatollah and the Iranian government. He remembered that when he sent an aircraft carrier to the region in 1978 during the revolution in a show of support for the Shah, it had only further weakened him. Further negotiation or rescue attempt were the options left, and they decided on the first. Brzezinski favored immediate rescue mission. Cyrus Vance thought negotiation was the best plan, and he had two examples that he could think of. An incident in 1949 where a consular staff officer and his wife were taken by Chinese militants in the confusion of the Chinese Civil War. They were put on trial for espionage. An angry President Truman wanted to start a blockade and a rescue operation. Joint Chiefs Chairman Omar Bradley argued against it on logistical and diplomatic grounds. Negotiation eventually led to the release of the consulate officer and his wife. Carter had actually reviewed Omar Bradley's memo in the early days of the conflict. In another incident, this time in 1968, the North Koreans seized a U.S. Navy vessel, the Pueblo, and took the crew hostage for 360 days. Lyndon Johnson did not use force against North Korea, and eventually the U.S. signed a document that admitted wrongdoing, which, of course, was quickly refuted in the public sphere. But it got the release of the sailors. All the type of options in 1968 that Vance remembered were discussed. Bombing the harbors of North Korea, sending U.S. fighters over North Korea in intimidating runs, were all seen as too provocative and risky. The hostages might be killed. Of course, political pressures of 1968 were a lot different than those in 1979. In 68, protests erupted all over the nation over Vietnam. And indeed, as the Pueblo incident came into the news, some suggested that this incident was just trumped up to be used for more LBJ war. Yet the Pueblo wasn't without political consequences for this Democratic administration. Richard Nixon was running this year, and he was going around the country saying, Remember the Pueblo. A fourth-rate power has taken our ship on the high seas. It's time for new leadership in America. By the time he took office, though, the Pueblo problem was resolved. The sailors were home. The ship to this day remains in North Korea as a trophy of their stand against the evil imperialist. Yet it would not take long at all for President Nixon now to face his own North Korean crisis in April of his first year, the shooting down of an EC-121 spy plane which killed 31 men. Nixon considered attacking the airfields of North Korea or sinking a North Korean ship in retaliation. Attorney General Mitchell, National Security Advisor Kissinger, wanted an attack too. Secretary of State Rogers, the Joint Chiefs, opposed it as it would tax too heavily on the forces already in Vietnam and could trigger a North Korean invasion of South Korea. Not to mention, Nixon had inherited that campus activities from LBJ, and any military action would be widely protested. Nixon decided against such force. He simply ordered that they would continue the reconnaissance flights of the EC. He publicly announced it, and 
he sent aircraft carriers to the area. In his memoirs, Nixon referred to both Pueblo and the EC incident as isolated ones. Now, this look into the China embassy and Pueblo incidents is not a digression. It was on the minds of all those who were sitting in the Situation Room participating in the White House reaction to Iran. For Vance, who had personally participated in the Pueblo discussions, it was the example to follow. Zig Brzezinski, however, didn't think Pueblo was a good precedent. I didn't think we could maintain that. Pueblo occurred when Vietnam dominated all the news. While he hadn't realized that newscasts would start ending broadcasts with the amount of days hostages were in captivity, he did know that the media would be focused on this hostage story for a long time. Ham Jordan looked at the politics. If the hostages aren't home by Thanksgiving, Mr. President, you can forget a second term. As it would turn out, it was optimistic to even think about Thanksgiving. Another defense aide, Stansfield Turner, was disappointed that Pueblo was being discussed as a precedent. He didn't consider it a victory at all. He didn't consider hostages held in North Korea for a year to be a good outcome. We were back to LBJ's futile efforts to get someone to negotiate on our behalf with a hostile power that didn't want to talk to us. This was close to the last year now of Carter's first term. Politics had to be present. In the coming year, as negotiations would fail, Governor Ronald Reagan used the issue to demonstrate to Americans the failure of President Carter's foreign policy. In his acceptance speech in 1980, he called Carter's foreign policy weak and vacillating. Soviet brigades were in Cuba, training close to Florida. Dictatorship was in Nicaragua. The Soviets, unchecked, had invaded Afghanistan. And more than 50 of our fellow Americans had been held for over eight months by a dictatorial power that holds us up to ridicule before the world. But Reagan wasn't President Carter's only challenger in 1980. He also had a challenge from Ted Kennedy. Now, Ted Kennedy a member of the Democratic Party, was clear not to attack Carter directly on the hostage issue, but made general attacks about his failure to lead, which implied it. On hostages, he simply said, I am hopeful that we can obtain the release of the hostages. But in attacking Carter's leadership, some reference to the hostages was implied, and it put pressure on the administration to act. It was Reagan, indeed, who had used the issue in 1980 to great effect. We should be clear about how. He attacked Carter's policies towards the Shah and said that his weak leadership encouraged the takeover of the student. He also suggested that intelligence advice before the crisis were ignored. Reagan did not spend 1980 attacking Carter on specific moves that could be made in the hostage crisis or offering a plan publicly stated of his own. In the debate against Carter in 1980, Barbara Walters challenged Reagan on the hostage issue. Governor, she asked, what would you do to release our hostages? Reagan was clear that he had ideas, but he was fearful of saying anything possibly underway that might undermine negotiations or expose hostages to danger. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. 
Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. He suggested that he would keep his ideas quiet and would only hint that Congress might want to look into the matter of how negotiations were done after the hostages' release. Reagan's attack had more to do with how Carter had handled the relationship with the Shah of Iran. His focus on human rights, Reagan said, undermined our allies, while the giant violator of human rights went unpunished, the Soviet Union. He sent a signal, Reagan said, with the cancellation of missile programs and bombers, that America was weaker, with a 3.3% minor increase in the military budget, that America was not committed to this anymore. He supported the rescue attempt, but said it should have been conducted earlier. Why no thunder and lightning? as Ahmad Khomeini expected. For Carter, it was absolutely not about politics. His wife Rosalind thought that if he did, if he did bomb Iran, he would have been reelected. That's probably true, Carter said in an interview, but it would have resulted in the deaths of maybe tens of thousand Iranians who were innocent and in the deaths of the hostages. In retrospect, Carter said, I have no doubt that it was the right thing. What Carter did order was an aborted rescue attempt. And then a long series of negotiations that lasted a bit longer than those of the Pueblo in 1968. He agreed to unfreeze the assets, $9 billion that were in the New York Federal Reserve and at various banks in London, and trade that for the release of the hostages. There were critics of how Carter handled it, no doubt. Even a few of the hostages felt that it wasn't handled right. Kevin Hemmerling said, I fail personally to see the merits of putting the interest of 52 individuals ahead of a nation's national security. It's a pretty objective statement, considering that he was one of those 52 people. Another hostage, Charles Scott, said, Iran walked away with no cost in blood and treasure. A group of hostages sued the U.S. government and the government of Iran for damages. But like any other group of 52 people... Some see the events differently and see it more as an opportunity for future understanding. Bruce Lanigan said, uh, the, the embassy head said, that he remained bitter about how he was treated. He remained bitter at the hostage takers, at their mixture of nicey-nice and psychological torture, sometimes calling them guests of the Ayatollah, sometimes telling them that they were being saved because the CIA wanted to kill them. The guards telling one hostage that he had no mail, so maybe his wife met someone else, telling another hostage that his mother was dead when she wasn't. Some physical abuse, normally that for escape attempts, but lots of psychological abuse. Still, despite all this, Lanigan said we needed to understand Iran, and they need to understand us. Barry Rosen, the press attaché, who was paraded out in angry crowds in a blindfold, went farther. He met with one of the hostage-takers in an event in Paris. The two shook hands. It was the hardest decision in my life, Barry Rosen said, but one that he hoped would help promote the cause of peace in the world. One of the odd effects of the 440-day crisis was that on Reagan's presidency. We normally don't think that Carter would have much influence on Reagan, right? Reagan had beat Carter in the election and 
He got two terms, and he was a much popular president, seen as more successful. What possible influence could Carter have on Reagan? But I think that understanding President Reagan's presidency is only possible through understanding the man that he beat and what happened. Reagan, as a president, was almost hostage-phobic. His actions in Lebanon, in the Iran-Contra matter, which wouldn't work out so well for him, all reveal his desire not to have hostages. So when a group of revolutionaries shot the prime minister of Grenada and took over the tiny island of 91,000 people near Trinidad, Americans were there in a medical school, St. George's Medical School, and were still on the island. The New Jewel Movement, which had taken over the country, was seen as a communist government and had ties to the Soviet Union and Cuba. In fact, there were Cuban troops on the island. There was some debate as to whether the medical students were in danger. The head of St. George's, who was living in Connecticut, had initially said there was no danger to the students on the island. Two days later, he changed his story with new information that he had. President Reagan's military advisors told him that it could be a hostage situation in the future, though hostages weren't taken yet. Reagan ordered the invasion. Overwhelming force was used. 7,600 men, Army Ranger battalions, 82nd Airborne Paratroops, Marines, Delta Force, Navy SEALs, as well as coalition troops from Jamaica and Caribbean Regional Security Forces. It was called Operation Urgent Fury, and it would be no Desert One. There would be no hostages and no disaster. In a few days, it would be a success. Now, the island had been sealed off from the press, so much so that an NBC boat had approached the island and was turned away and told that if it went any further, it would be sunk. So there's no media on the island. And apparently there was a bit of a firefight and there were actual Grenadian and Cuban troops on the ground. And they did resist the taking of the island. Had less force been used in the case, might have been a disaster. Apparently Ronald Reagan in the planning for the event told one of his military aides, Double the number of troops. If Carter had doubled the number of helicopters, he'd be sitting in this chair, referring to the Desert One rescue mission. May or may not be right. Ham Jordan felt that things were so bad that the president would have lost anyway, even with a hostage rescue. We saw in the Grenada operation how Reagan did everything to not have another Iran during his presidency. Was this Iran issue the decisive issue in sinking Carter? Let's go to the Gallup poll information. Something strange happens in 1979 with Iran. It's a situation where Jimmy Carter already has poor approval ratings. He's over 50% after the Camp David Accords, but through 1978 and most of 1979, he was dragged down by inflation, unemployment, gas lines, him disappearing for a few days to Camp David, then reshuffling his cabinet and making a strange speech. His approval was down to 30%. So it makes it very telling. When after the embassy is seized in Tehran, he shoots back up over 55% in November 79, a rally effect around the commander-in-chief that helped him uh, at least until the failed rescue attempt in April 1980. Just enough time to beat Ted Kennedy in both New Hampshire and Iowa. But after the Desert One operation, April 1980, hope eludes the voters. His poll rating drifts down. Got two campaigns attacking him and... He's down to 29% in August 1980, and not much higher by the time of the election. This suggests that it wasn't the hostage crisis itself that sunk Carter. It wasn't that he didn't bomb Iran immediately, but that it dragged on to stalemate through the next year. Jordan and Brzezinski 
had served their president well with advice. If he cared to think about a second term, negotiation wasn't the way to get it. On that, they were right. Yet, would the deaths of 52 Americans been warmly received either in the political polls? Even if Iran was in flames from American air power? These political could-have-beens are difficult to resolve. Maybe it was a no-win for Carter in any case. Year one, two, and three of Carter's administration would have suggested that his re-elect in 1980 would have been completely fought on the economy and on inflation. What can we do to keep prices down? Something we don't think about as much these days, except, you know, for gasoline. The Republicans would play the FDR role in attacking an anemic president who wasn't doing anything to create economic growth. That's what 1980 would be about, another 1932 which still looked good for the Republicans. The embassy taking itself didn't immediately shift that election to foreign policy grounds, but certainly after the failed rescue attempt and as the hostage crisis dragged on, 1980 shifted to foreign affairs as well. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.